We're dealing with a number of church challenges as we walk through the letter of 1 Corinthians. And we are in the third specific challenge that Paul begins addressing with this congregation and with ours, which is the challenge of marriage. It's assumed by the Apostle Paul that marriage will be a challenge that the church has to reckon with and deal with, that it won't always be easy. And so he supplies instruction for us for how to think about marriage in this chapter. And we're in the second part of this marriage challenge, um, and we're going to look this morning at God's perspective on divorce. Last week, we looked at God's perspective on marital intimacy, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at God's perspective on singleness. What I want to do this morning in verses 10 through 24 is talk about the core principle that's undergirding this whole discussion. And then I want to see how the Apostle Paul illustrates and applies it specifically in the realm of marriage. I I was wrestling this week about how to kind of carve this chapter up and make it most helpful. And the more that I sat in it and kind of thought through it, the more I realized that this core principle that I'm going to talk about on the front end is, is the one thing that he gives the vast majority of verses in this chapter to understanding. And it's something that I don't think we spend a whole lot of time thinking about. And so the importance of this core principle has roots, and sinking our roots deep down to this core principle allows us to think through the various ways in which this might apply. And if we just go to the applications first, we won't get back behind the applications and see what's driving all of this. So on the front end, I want to spend some time looking at verses um, 17 and 20 and 24 to really get our idea around what this core principle is that Paul is laying out. So let's, let's get into the text this morning. First of all, the core principle stated. What is the general principle that's guiding all of Paul's thinking here about marriage, remarriage, divorce, and singleness? He says it three different times in basically the same way in verses 17, 20, and 24. I want you to notice those three verses. Look at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him to which God has called him. All right, so what's undergirding that idea? That your life is arranged by God. You don't arrange your life. God arranges your life. You don't assign your life to yourself. The Lord assigns a life to you. And therefore, if the Lord has given you an assignment, you're required to fulfill the assignment that he has given you. You don't have the freedom to tamper with his assignment and opt out of his assignment if you don't like it. So the Lord has led you to an assignment, and he has called you to lead the the assignment that you have been assigned, or the life to which you've been assigned. He says, this is my rule in all the churches. It's not just something the apostle goes around telling the Corinthians. He says it to the Thessalonians, the Philippians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, to Timothy, to Titus, and all the other churches to whom he was writing. Look at a second way he describes it in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So that's, that's another angle on this, this basic core principle. The Lord has assigned you to this life, so lead this life. And what does that mean? Remain in it, right? Remain in the condition in which you were called. Now, calling here is talking about, I think, primarily salvation, Remain in the place you were in when you were saved. In the context here, he's going to get into this, is marriage. Because many Corinthians were thinking, okay, I'm saved now. Maybe my spouse is or my spouse isn't. 
should that affect whether or not I remain married to them or not? And his instruction is, stay where you are. Then verse 24, he says, so brothers, in whatever condition, that covers a lot of ground, doesn't it? In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Do you see how this basic principle is fleshed out? You're not alone in the assignment the Lord has given you. You're not alone in the place that the Lord has assigned you. You're not alone in the, in the, the sphere of responsibility that the Lord has given you. You are there. You are called to be there because God is there and will stay there with you in it. That affects a lot of Paul's thinking here in terms of how we go about marriage. So in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is taking this core principle of staying where you are and applying it to issues surrounding sex and singleness and divorce and remarriage. Now what ties these issues together is this core principle of staying where you are with God. Stay in the condition you're in. Those who are married, Paul says in the first five verses, should keep having marital relations with one another. You should stay right there and keep doing what they're doing. If you're an unmarried or you're a widow, you should stay unmarried, verses 8 and 9. If you're a married Christian, verses 10 and 11, you should stay married. If you're a circumcised Jewish person, you should stay circumcised. You shouldn't seek to have that uncircumcision removed. If you're a bond servant who's in a form of human slavery, that's not the final determining thing about whether or not you can serve God or not. You can serve God there as well. Of course, Paul says, if you have the opportunity for freedom, get freedom. He says in verses 26 through 38 that if you're unmarried, you should stay unmarried. And then in verses 39 and 40, married women should stay married and widows should stay unmarried. So his whole point in the whole chapter, the whole principle that's clearly stated and that's undergirding all his instruction is stay where you are. When we come to faith in Christ... We are not to be overly concerned with changing anything circumstantially in terms of our callings in marriage or in our work. Instead, insofar as our vocation is lawful in the eyes of God, we should remain there and find ways to serve Christ where we are. Paul tells the Corinthians here, and by telling them this, to stay where they are, he's dealing with a basic human tendency, isn't it? And it's a tendency that resides in all of our hearts from time to time. My circumstances are fundamentally the problem. That's what we tell ourselves. That's what the world tells you. And that's not what God tells you. God can say that your circumstances do affect your life. But they are not determinative of anything in your life. Your calling is what's determinative of your life. Where the Lord has assigned you is what is determinative of your life, not your circumstances. We have the tendency to see our situations, though, as the exception to the rule. As we're, we're in a tougher situation than others, and therefore we hold ourselves above the rules and think our circumstances are the real problems in our life. But your circumstances are not the main issue. People leave marriages and jobs and churches all the time only to discover that their problem was not the marriage, it was not the job, and it was not the church. Your default, my default, our default should be to stay where we are. 
The Lord does not demand any sort of drastic change in our social status, employment, or marital state when he brings us to faith in Jesus. These outward circumstances don't have any bearing whatsoever on whether or not we can serve God, unless, of course, they require us to sin. Consequently, he doesn't require us to change any of them. We can do the Lord's work and glorify him in virtually any situation. So if we become a Christian, Paul's saying specifically to the Corinthians here, after marriage, and your spouse is is not a believer, you don't have to be married to a Christian to live for Christ. Don't assume that you're in the wrong place or stuck with the wrong person. We can become so concerned or so consumed with what we could be doing for God somewhere else that we miss the opportunities that God has given us to serve him right where we are. So that's the, that's the core principle that's stated here. And it really gets to the core issues of marriage and divorce, doesn't it? We're going to talk about these more a little bit later. But according to Jesus in Mark 10, divorce is not the result of something outside of, our, outside of you. Result is all, it's always the result of either one spouse or both spouses inside. According to Mark 10, sinful hard-heartedness is the reason for divorce. That has nothing to do with circumstances. That has to do with the way your heart has responded to circumstances. And instead of remaining there with God and honoring him, you have chosen to harden your heart against your spouse and God. We can foster this kind of sinful hard-heartedness in marriage when we begin thinking and saying things like, well, that isn't the man I married. I don't love her anymore. God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. I just need something different. Dear ones, you have married a different person than you thought. And if you marry them for any period of time, they're going to be a different person by the end of it, I hope. There is such a thing in in life called progressive sanctification. The person you married may not, be the, may, may, may not be who you thought they were, but the solution is not to find a different person whom you'll later find out is not who you thought they were either. While your circumstances may be heartbreaking, it's better than heart hardening, produced by a callousness toward God. So that's the principle stated, and that's what, that's what Paul's getting at, is, is stay where you are. Now, no doubt there's some unique factors that contribute to that particular command for the Corinthians. Let me be clear up front here. It doesn't mean that you can't change jobs, okay? It doesn't mean that there's no place for changing churches. It doesn't mean that there's no place for change in our lives. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about making radical life-altering changes on the basis of our belief that we can't please God where we are. All right, that's what's undergirding this thing. He's not ever calling a Christian to never do anything other than what they were given right at the moment they were converted. We all do stuff now that we didn't do when we were converted, I hope, and we'll do stuff later that we're not doing now. So that's not the point. Life has seasons, there are changes, things like that. But the key principle for the Corinthians is there was evidently some sort of crisis going on. Paul says it a number of times in this chapter. He says, in light of the present crisis, don't make any rash decisions. In light of the present crisis, do this. And then he doesn't tell us what the present crisis is. Okay, which makes it a little bit difficult. But what it does tell us is there are some unique circumstantial things 
to his instructions here, that we don't need to press too far, lest we think that God would only have us always and and in every way to stay exactly where we are, doing always what we're doing, otherwise we're displeasing him in some way. That's not the case. But it is a principle that in general our reflexive reactions to things should be, okay, if the Lord has called me to this, which if, you're, if it's in your life right now, he has, right? The Lord has called you to this, and he's not opened a legitimate door of escape otherwise, then you remain there with God. And how much of that has factored into even our own service this morning as we thought about persecution, right? If, if our persecuted brothers and sisters could get free, they would. No requirement to stay in jail, especially if you're given your freedom. There's nothing noble about that. But at the same time, If God has not provided that, remain there with him and suffer for his sake. So that's the core principle stated. Let's look secondly at the core principle illustrated. He illustrates it in two ways. First of all, referencing circumcision, and second of all, referencing slavery or or bond servant life. So we're going to look at each of these one at a time. First of all, let's look at the uh, illustration he gives for the Jew-Gentile distinction, verses 18 and 19. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? Couldn't say a woman there, that doesn't exist. He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commandments is what counts. So, Paul's really clear here. These outward signs of the Jewish Mosaic Covenant... These outward signs of circumcision, that this, this reference to the Abrahamic covenant that Jews were circumcised because they were in physical lineage of, 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 to Abraham, we could see how that in the book of Galatians, for instance, that, that was starting to creep into the churches, and they were beginning to, in some cases, require that of Christians. If you're going to be a Christian, you've got to keep the Abrahamic covenant too, which means you need to be circumcised if you're a male. But Paul, over and over again, says that thinking undermines the gospel and it's not true. It's not a part of the new covenant. So if one is uncircumcised, that is a Gentile who comes to faith in Christ, he doesn't need to change his circumstance. He can stay right where he is as a converted Gentile without adopting all these Jewish customs. That's Paul's point. If he's circumcised as a Jew, he doesn't need to reverse the circumcision. He can be content as a Jewish Christian because one can serve God either way. And remarkably, he says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. That's not the issue, the external. Because again, that would be reinforcing what he's been saying. Your circumstances aren't the issue. You got this physical mark of Jewishness on your body, or you want this physical mark of Jewishness on your body because you think that's going to contribute to your standing with God. It doesn't. It doesn't count for anything. What matters is keeping God's commandments. What matters is walking with God not the outward things that are going on. And then he provides another illustration in verses 21 to 23, where he says, Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Paul obviously doesn't see slavery as a net positive. Okay, It was the reality of the situation he was speaking into. And there were many bondservants or slaves that were getting converted and asking, well, can I serve Christ here? Do I need to run away from my master? Do I, what, what do I need? To, can I serve Christ as a bondservant? And he says, yes, because in God's eyes, you're not a bondservant. You're a freedman of the Lord. 
You belong to Him. Your life is now oriented around God's purposes, and you can serve God and His purposes in that environment. He says, For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when he is called is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of human beings. In other words, take the reference out of the horizontal and put it in the vertical. Think of yourself as the Lord views you, not as society views you, and that will enable you to serve the Lord where he has called you. Now, he obviously, ancient slavery in the Corinthian society was far different than the slavery that was characteristic of, of our country for a long period of time. Ancient slaves weren't at the bottom um, of everything, but they still were viewed very low in the social order. And if anyone had reason to be concerned about their status and want a change of status, it would be a slave or a bondservant. Yet, Paul tells Christian slaves not to be overly concerned about that. In other words, they should not be making it their chief aim to escape slavery, but rather ought to focus on serving Christ where they are. Their faith in Christ relativized the importance of their status as bondservants, meaning that it's not the most important thing about them any longer. It just happens to be where Christ found them when he called them to faith. Nevertheless, Paul's direction is not that people have to remain slaves. He says that while they should not be overly concerned about their slavery, if they can obtain their freedom, they should take advantage of it. Thus, we see that while the Christian faith should not make people focused on changing their outward calling, neither does it forbid all change in our callings. It is not necessarily bad to want a different job, to be married, or to gain individual liberty. The problem is when that becomes our primary aim, when we are so discontent that we start to believe that we can't serve God in any circumstance. So how can you serve Christ when your circumstances feel so difficult? Verse 23, you were bought with a price. Verse 24, remain there with God. Is that not enough? Christ owns me, God is with me. Brothers and sisters, if that's not enough for you, I don't know what is. You're just basically going to have to live in unbelief, which means not be a Christian. If you're circ- you can never, ever say, if you only understood my circumstances. We, can, we should have those conversations. But brothers and sisters, that is not the issue. That is not the issue. We don't need to have exclusive circumstantial conversations. We need to talk about heart issues, dispositions of belief and unbelief, dispositions regarding what has the Lord assigned to you and how are you responding to that assignment. Are you bucking his yoke? You wish you could take his yoke off of you even though it's gentle and his burden is light? That's the conversation we need to have. How can we bear up under the yoke the Lord has given you? That is the conversation that needs to happen. And that's the conversation we need to be having as church members when we talk to each other about our struggles. If there's a legitimate way to alleviate those struggles, we should do it, right? We shouldn't say, well, the Lord's given you a burden. Sorry about that, brother. Just bear up under it. No, carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are to walk alongside of each other and lighten each other's loads. But, Paul says in Galatians 6, each man has his own load. So while we are to carry one another's burdens, we are not to relieve each other of all responsibility. We are to call each other to say, brother, sister, how is the Lord working in this situation? Maybe you can't see it, but how would he call you to live now in light of where you are? 
How does the, the promise that God will remain there with you and that Christ has bought you, how does that provide you comfort in the midst of this challenging circumstance? And then you pray together and you encourage one another and those sorts of things. So I just think Paul's general statement of this principle and his illustrations are wonderfully balanced in terms of his instruction for us as a congregation as well. Yes, we, we can and we should remain where we are if the Lord does not provide a legitimate way out. We can and should remain where we are because the Lord has assigned us to that place. He has bought us with a price of his own son. He is with us and will remain with us, not just temporarily pay us a visit once in a while. He will remain there with you in your circumstance. It's a great comfort. But also, if there's a legitimate way to get out of a circumstance, we seek each other's counsel. We say, hey, brother, hey, sister, am I receiving this the right way? Should I look for a change of circumstance here, or would God have me to stay in it? That's great. That's where, that's where the church and, the, and a multitude of counselors comes in, and we, we, we share with our family and our friends and our pastors and our de- whoever is in our sphere just working through these issues. How would, should we think about this? And then we prayerfully take the next step. And if God provides a way of escape or a way out or a different option, you can take it freely. You don't have to search some mysterious will of God and, well, am I out of God's will if I take this step? Paul doesn't even bring that into consideration here. He just says, if you got another opportunity and it's legitimate and you want to do it, go for it. And if you don't, remain there with God because it's not determinative over whether you can serve him or not. That's his point. So with that foundation laid, let's spend the rest of our time then applying this core principle to marriage specifically to the troubled Christian marriage in verses 10 and 11 and the mixed faith Christian marriage in verses 12 through 16. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. So first of all, the core principle applied to the troubled Christian marriage. You can already imagine what he's going to say, having spent so much time on this, right? Look at verse 10 and 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And as Larry had indicated in his scripture reading, He's specifically referencing a teaching that Jesus said. That's why he says, this is the Lord speaking, not me. It is Paul speaking, but he's speaking on behalf of Jesus because Jesus has a verse on it. And we'll talk about what that is in just a moment. But to the, to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So what's the principle? Remain there with God. Stay where you are. Your marriage is troubled, stay there with God. Paul begins with a command from the Lord. If you're married, don't get divorced. Jesus says in Mark 10, 11, and 12, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Paul echoes these words in verse 10. The wife must not separate from her husband, and in verse 11, the husband must not divorce his wife. And it's this thought that is undergirding that command. Paul is forbidding divorce for professing Christians because Jesus did. While we'll see in a moment that there are cases when Christians may divorce without sinning, it's never to be the goal. Clearly, Paul here is addressing situations where there's no biblical cause for ending a marriage, where both spouses are professing Christians and where divorces are being initiated for unbiblical reasons. The bottom line is for anyone considering divorce, don't consider it. That's what he's saying. Don't entertain it. If you find yourself in a troubled marriage, stay in it, realize the Lord has called you to it, look to Jesus, remain there with God, and seek renewal. He will be with you. Married brother or sister, it really comes down to this question, doesn't it? Who is my Lord? 
who's my Lord? It will show up in your marriage. If Jesus is your Lord, you won't separate or divorce your spouse illegitimately. If Jesus is your Lord, you will seek to be reconciled to your spouse. And if an illegitimate divorce occurs, if Jesus is your Lord, you will remain unmarried on the other side. However, if Jesus is not your Lord, you will see how your problem, with, you will see no problem whatsoever in separating from or divorcing your spouse for illegitimate reasons. After all, God wants you to be happy, which in these cases is the voice of Satan and not God. If Jesus is not your Lord, you will not seek reconciliation. And if Jesus is not your Lord, on the back end of illegitimate divorce, you will have no problem getting remarried. Now you know why the disciples responded the way they did when Jesus told them this. If that's the case, Lord, it's better not to marry. You get it now. You get it now. Yes, it is. Count the cost before you do it. Or don't get married. So, where is Paul's counsel coming in here? Well, he gives them the ideal situation. He says, don't separate, don't divorce. And he's not using separation in the way we typically use it. He's using separation as equated to divorce. It's the same idea in Paul's mind. He just says, stay where you are. But then notice the, the, the other option. If divorce does occur, if she does, verse 11, or if he does, they must remain unmarried or be reconciled to each other. So Paul tells them that husbands and wives should not get divorced and that if they do and they're professing Christians, they should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to their former spouses. Jesus puts illegitimate divorce coupled with remarriage in the category of adultery and Paul puts illegitimate divorce in the same category except holding out the other two possibilities in order to avoid adultery that Jesus did not speak about. Paul and Jesus make clear that when a divorce is not, was not permissible, any subsequent remarriage to someone other than the original spouse results in adultery. If someone is illegitimately divorced, then the remarriage is also illegitimate. This doesn't mean someone isn't really divorced and they aren't really remarried. It means they shouldn't have been divorced. The covenant hadn't been broken and shouldn't have been severed. Subsequently, you shouldn't be married to someone other than your original spouse. And that means if you were remarried, that new sexual relationship is sinful. But what is the church to do in things like this with professing Christians who desire separation and divorce? Unfortunately, often the church does nothing. But one thing is important to note. The cause for the desire for separation and divorce is the result of what Jesus calls hardness of heart. So how is the church called to deal with hardness of heart? Church discipline. What is remarkable to me is that Christians who are in unrepentant, troubled marriages continue to take the Lord's Supper together month after month when they have no biblical grounds for doing so. They should refrain and let it pass. Why do I say that? Because if two Christians who are married to each other are both church members then they are brothers and sisters in Christ before they are husband and wife. And they are out of fellowship with one another. I'm not talking about tension. We all have marital tension from time to time. I'm talking about chronic, unrepentant, almost borderline hatred and disgust for each other. And yet, they continue to take the Lord's Supper together. And by doing so, they not only violate Scripture, but they sin against Christ every time they do it. 
Brother or sister, if you can't take your wife's hand at the Lord's Supper, you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. You need to be reconciled to your sister. You need to be reconciled to your brother. Is that not what Jesus says we should do when we come to the table? Why do we think it doesn't apply to marriage? Is it just the person who's not in your family that you're to be reconciled with? Or the person who's in your home? I think they experience more of your sin than anybody else does. And that would be true for my home as well. So the council stands, I think. That doesn't mean that you should not take the Lord's Supper if there's tension in your marriage. But if there is long-standing, unresolved issues of clear and unrepentant sin against one another, why has our regular practice of communion not led you to address that? The Lord's Supper is intended to heal broken relationships. That's its main purpose, aside from helping us to remember the primary way we have a broken relationship that's been restored, namely the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross reconciling us to God the Father. But then that's meant to have a horizontal impact as we seek to live at peace with others as far as it depends on me. Brother, husband, your wife is your sister in Christ and fellow church member before she's your wife. Sister, wife, your husband is your brother in Christ and fellow church member before they are your husband. Refuse to take the Lord's Supper together until your issues have been at least addressed and on the way to resolution, repentance has been initiated, forgiveness has been extended, and reconciliation is in process. Doesn't mean everything has to be worked out. And if you need help in this, this is why the church has been called upon to counsel one another and why we have godly and wise leadership. Life's complexities can make this difficult, and there's wisdom in a multitude of godly counselors. But what if there is no repentance? Well, if a husband or wife are unrepentant, and desire to separate from each other without biblical warrant, they should be disciplined by the church. And if the church excommunicates the unrepentant husband or wife, or in some cases maybe both of them, they are, by judicial pronouncement of the congregation, no longer those who have a credible profession of faith. So therefore, they are either to be treated as an unbeliever or as both as unbelievers. Doesn't that clear up a lot of the marriage and remarriage conversation then? But when you take church discipline out of it, it's the subjective opinion of two professing Christians, which helps nobody. So that's the troubled Christian marriage. Secondly, the mixed faith marriage in verses 12 to 16. Paul now moves on to another category of marriage difficulty, the situation in which a believer is married to an unbeliever. And this should underscore the importance of marrying in the Lord, right? He says that later in the chapter. To not do so is to introduce another kind of trouble into our life. But, but sometimes that's not the case. Oftentimes, it's not the case. You get married as two unbelievers. One person gets converted. The other person doesn't. That's very common. And so Paul has some instructions here about what to do in those particular situations. Look at verse 12 and 13. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, and this is, again, not Paul setting himself up as a higher authority than Jesus, just saying, I don't have a verse from Christ on this. Jesus didn't talk about this. But I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have been given authority as an apostle. I am under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I tell you. So this, that we're not pitting Paul's words against Jesus' words. They're, they're the same words. To the rest, I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So doing both sides, the wife 
who has a husband who's unconverted or the husband who has a wife who's unconverted. And his principle is the same. Stay where you are. Stay where you are. So Paul clarifies that. He says that if a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever is willing to remain married, the believer is not to seek a divorce. By willing, Paul rules out any kind of animus between the two or open hostility between the two. The idea here is that the unbelieving husband or wife remains committed to the marriage and is willing to allow the believing wife or husband to practice the Christian faith and live as a Christian. And as long as a non-Christian spouse tolerates the Christian faith of the other spouse, the Christian's to remain married to the unbeliever. Notice per- verse 14. Paul gives the reason for this counsel. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it are, is it they are holy. Lots of questions about this verse. But I want you to keep it, keep it in the broad context, okay, because it will help us in our interpretation of it. Paul gives the reason for the unbelieving spouse being remain, being remained married to the non-believing or the believing spouse, so that the, the the that the children will be raised in an environment in which there is a measure or degree of holiness present. Okay, so some in the congregation probably believed that if they were united to an unbeliever, that their children were going to be corrupt. Again, go back to chapter 6, where Paul says, does not uniting with a prostitute make you one flesh with her? So maybe in their thinking, they were thinking, okay, if I'm united both sexually and maritally to someone who's not a part of the family of God, my children are born corrupt by virtue of that union. They're all corrupted by it because my union is corrupt. He's not talking about whether you should baptize your babies. That's not, that's where, this is one argument that our Presbyterian brothers and sisters will use. Well, children are holy. See, they're holy. That's not what it's talking about. It's not using holiness in that context. It's talking about defilement. It's using that context. That's, holiness is used in a multitude of ways in the Bible. And it doesn't always just mean they're set apart from God in a unique saving sense. Here he's talking about, you're, don't worry your children are better served by you persevering and remaining in your marriage than if you got a divorce. That's his point, I think. Instead of the unbeliever defiling the believer in a mixed-faith marriage, Paul notes the believer can actually have a sanctifying influence over the home, and the children of the union should not be viewed as inherently corrupt as a result of the marriage. Paul is using this as encouragement to believers in this situation, right? He does not mean that the unbelieving spouse is automatically saved by being married to a Christian or that children of the marriage are guaranteed eternal life. Paul is using this as an encouragement to believers who find themselves in this situation who have children or want to have children even though their spouse does not believe. The mere fact that a marriage is unequally yoked does not mean it is an unholy thing and that all that flows from it is sin. That's his point. There are so many wonderful overflow blessings that come to a marriage, even of a believer and an unbeliever. They enjoy some of the moral benefits. A believing mom or dad does have a sanctifying effect on the family. However, even with this sanctifying effect, it doesn't mean things will always turn out well. And that's why he goes on in verse 15 to say, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. 
In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Scripture teaches that Christians may divorce and remarry. In the case of adultery, as Jesus has already illustrated. But also, not only when one spouse is sexually unfaithful to another, does that permit, though not require, divorce. But also, when an unbelieving spouse desires no longer to remain married to the believing spouse. So Paul gives a second legitimate grounds for divorce that Jesus never talked about because it never came up, at least in the Gospels. And that is that when an unbeliever leaves a believer, they are not bound to the marriage and may be remarried. They may legitimately divorce since God has called us to peace. Christians may divorce and remarry when an unbeliever wants out of the marriage, when the unbeliever abandons the union. So a Christian may remarry after a divorce when at least one of three things has occurred. We haven't talked about this, but this is critical too. When a spouse dies, they're no longer united. You've pledged your marriage till death do you part. And Romans 7.3 says that we're not bound to anyone who has died. So if you're a widow or a widower, that is definitely the case that you can be remarried. Also, according to Matthew 19.9, if a spouse commits adultery, Jesus gives the couple grounds for divorce. Or if an unbelieving spouse deserts the believing spouse, according to here in, in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7. Divorce for other reasons besides abandonment and adultery should be unacceptable for Christians. Why are these the two permissible terms for divorce? Because these two violate the marriage covenant at its core. What was the marriage covenant? Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That's the first part of the covenant. And the two shall become one flesh. Abandonment breaks the first part. Adultery breaks the second part. And that's what breaks the covenant. And so when the covenant is broken, not by, not by God, but God permitting it to be broken, is grounds for legitimate divorce though not a requirement. So divorce for other reasons besides these are not in Scripture because they, these are the ones that, that are specifically chosen. God's just not being arbitrary here, and Paul's not being arbitrary like, okay, I pick adultery and abandonment. No, he's picking those because those are the ones that actually dissolve the covenant at its core. So I want you to notice something, though. The unbeliever is the one initiating it. One of Paul's underlying points here is that true disciples of Jesus don't want to get out of their marriages. They want to keep their covenant vows, and they'll stick it out as long as the other spouse is willing. While Christians married to unbelievers are to try to get along and make the marriage work, if an unbelieving spouse insists on leaving, let him or her go. The only alternative would be for the Christian to deny his or her faith to preserve the marriage, and that would be worse than dissolving the marriage. Now, I think this is why church discipline is so important because it brings clarity regarding who the believer and who the unbeliever are. Who's responding in repentance and who's responding in bitterness? Who's responding in forgiveness and who's withholding forgiveness? Those sorts of things surface some of these issues because otherwise, if two Christians get divorced, you're basically at the, at the whim of the stories of the two spouses and the church has not given any authoritative pronouncement over anything which is a terrible place to put the church in. It's a terrible place to put the marriage in. It's a terrible place to put the glory of God in because there's nothing clear, and the church has failed in its exercise of its role. 
But it's important to point out that even though the unbeliever often and mostly will initiate the divorce, it's important to point out that sometimes an unbeliever will use this verse to play passive-aggressive games and try to use that against the believer. I've seen it happen. I'm not leaving. They're just wanting me to leave, even though they're a pill to live with. And they're trying to make it the blame of the person who's struggling and suffering as the reason, well, I'll finally leave because they just can't put up with it anymore. That is all on them. They are eaten up with pride and arrogance and unrepentance and unwillingness to live and serve their spouse. But they're trying to, blame, they're trying to do the blame game where they try to use a power play to coerce the believer into taking the hit. This is not what Paul has in mind here. And in fact, this kind of prolonged behavior would require the believer to initiate first and the church to discipline that person for being that way in the marriage, unrepentantly. So, what is Paul's concluding encouragement in verse 16? For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, oftentimes, this is... Use, this verse is used as a reason for the believing spouse to remain in the marriage. That is not the way Paul is using it here. Frankly, I think this verse has been used a lot of times to guilt believing spouses into remaining in marriages they should have left a long time ago. Because they feel like if they don't, then how is their unbelieving spouse going to be saved? Paul says this on the back end of the fact that the unbelieving spouse has already left and giving encouragement to the believing spouse to let them go and to not feel a guilt trip about that. Paul uses these questions to encourage the husband or wife who feels like they failed, that if they go through a divorce from an unbelieving spouse, it's their fault. These words mirror the anxiety that might keep someone tethered to a marriage where an unbelieving spouse has made the decision to leave. They are intended to alleviate the guilt trip the believing spouse would give themselves over not hanging in there longer. In fact, refusing to let someone go who is insistent on going their own way may be more of a barrier to their conversion than your divorce would be. Think about that. Now, is this incentive for the dissolving of the marriage? No. But where an unbeliever wants to leave, Paul says, let them go. God has called you to peace. You're not enslaved. Because all those would be feelings that the believing spouse would have. Paul says you're not responsible for their conversion. They are. And God may use someone else to point them to Christ, not you. That's why he raised it. How do you know, wife, whether you're going to save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? You don't know. God knows. So don't needlessly throw a guilt trip on yourself about that. All right. Let me conclude. Seven quick pastoral applications and encouragements. First of all, to the church. We have a responsibility to protect and help each other's marriages, both in the formation, the nurture, and in the discipline of them, if necessary. We do this by taking and creating a culture where marriage is honored. So on the front end, this means that we inquire of potential new members, whether they've been wrongfully divorced or whether they've taken appropriate steps toward repentance. Also, for new marriages starting in our congregation, praise the Lord for such things, we offer counsel and come alongside the wife and the husband to try to encourage them, either through premarital counseling, mutual encouragement, to get out and get started well. On the back end, 
If a member of this church wrongfully divorces their spouse, it means that they're living in unrepentance, and it's our job to warn them through discipline that they're no longer, they no longer have a credible profession of faith. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul rebuked the church for failing to discipline a member who was violating marriage vows by sleeping with his stepmother. To singles, I want you to settle in your heart the gravity of marriage now and not give... And this is not a license for you to not get married and to shack up and live with somebody because that makes it more unlikely statistically and biblically that you will have a successful marriage at all. If you pursue marriage, care about God's intentions for it on the front end. Unlike most decisions you make, this one's for life. Don't start down a path of dating an unbeliever or dating someone with no intention of marrying them. As we'll see next week, devote yourself to the Lord and offer yourself unreservedly and wholeheartedly to Him as God has given you a fruitful door of effective ministry in your singleness to be exclusively devoted to Him in a way that married people can't. Some of you long to be married while in your singleness and others of you are content in your singleness. Regardless, you are not alone, you are loved by the Lord and we are grateful for you and our church family. And you are not a second-class citizen. You are a full-blooded, full, full, fully bought inheritor of all things, just as even with any other married person in the kingdom of God. That is not what is determinative of your status in the family. We see the ways you are devoted to him. We see the ways you have to suffer because of singleness often. And we want you to know that your reward will be great in the kingdom and you will receive a name better than sons and daughters, according to the book of Isaiah. To the married who enjoy a degree of health and stability, please do not grow complacent. You can grow, go from healthy and stable to troubled almost overnight, it seems. Guard and invest in your marriage. A healthy marriage today is a dying marriage, marriage tomorrow, if not invested in, unless the garden is tended and the weeds are pulled. This is why we do grace marriage, not because we're trying to be cool but we're trying to have an ounce of prevention that will help a pound of cure. We take your marriage to the gym quarterly so you don't have to take it to the hospital. If you won't invest in it, it will die. Everything in this life atrophies. It's the fall. You have to invest. You have to be intentional. Don't think you're above failing. Take heed lest you fall. Don't think you're above temptation. Pray together. Take walks together. Get away from the kids to be together. There are few things more precious in life than your marriage. Don't take it for granted. And consider how you can minister to and invest in younger married couples in our church. Your job does not end at caring for your own marriage. And one of the best ways you can care for your marriage is to invest in the marriages of others. Nothing quite holds our feet to the fire like doing that. Now, to the married who struggle with many challenges, don't give up. If you think your marriage is dead, remember that we have a God who knows his way out of the grave. And if you're contemplating divorce, please talk to someone. Don't give up. If you have biblical grounds for divorce, consider what glory it might be to God to patiently work toward reconciliation. And if you don't have biblical grounds, consider what offense it will be to God to break the promises you made in his name. Consider the harm to your kids. Stay married. To those who have been abandoned or wrongfully divorced or to the legitimately divorced on biblical grounds, I can't control every reaction in our congregation, but if I could, I'd make sure that you'd encountered no one who looked down on you. Shame on those who shame the legitimately divorced. 
They are no second-class kingdom in the kingdom of heaven because their marriage ended. And no scarlet letters should be attached to them. They've all been nailed to the cross. Even if there was no sin involved on their part, brother, sister, who has been legitimately divorced, all your shame rests on the strong shoulders of your mighty Redeemer. You belong to Christ. Divorced person is not your identity. We do not want you to run from the church, but find grace and fellowship here. To the sinfully divorced, have you agreed with God that your actions were sinful and sought his mercy through repentance? This would mean reconciling with your spouse if you and they are currently single. Can you find in your heart that God might be able to reconcile you and your spouse? It would be a great trophy of his grace to bring you back together. And if reconciliation and remarriage isn't possible, don't get remarried. To do so would be to commit adultery according to Jesus. Don't compound sin upon sin, and don't let hardness of heart lead to further hardness of heart. Finally, to those who have sinfully divorced, to those whose sin caused the divorce, or to those who are now married when you shouldn't be remarried, run to the cross and stay married to your current spouse. God's grace is not light and it is not small. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. There is mercy yet for you. But the contrition must be real and the admission of guilt must be honest. The repentance must be earnest. A broken heart and a contrite spirit the Lord will never deny. Run to God, plead with God, know his adopting love, experience again his justifying grace. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. We know how Jesus treats people who've not just experienced one illegitimate divorce and have remarried, but someone who experienced four of them at a well. And he met them with grace, and he made them a citizen of the kingdom. Because that's what grace does. So I hope, brothers and sisters, you've been encouraged by both the sober seriousness of the topic, but also the fact that the Lord is able to redeem in the midst of all the messes that our sin creates in our lives. But wherever we are, however this sermon lands on us this morning, God is with you. You've been brought with a price. Remain there with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for both the warnings and the promises. Thank you for the grace that it gives to us as well as the conviction it brings to our hearts. We thank you that all of these words are given to us by our tender shepherd who desires to lead us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Do that for all of us as your weak and needy sheep. Forgive us where we've sinned. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Grant that in whatever season we find ourselves by your calling and your appointment that we would remain there with you and we wouldn't look to our circumstances as the blame or the reason for all the things, but we would recognize that you have called us to those circumstances. You are with us in those circumstances. And you will sanctify to us our deepest distresses. So Lord, help us to love you. Give us wisdom for all the multitude of things that weren't talked about this morning. All the gray areas and the difficulties. But may these general principles guide our thinking and instruct and fuel our worship. And, and, and cause us to run in the way of your commandments. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.